This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In the news this episode, well, Boeing seems to be dominating the news after the Alaska Airlines door plug incident. We talk about Spirit Aerosystems, manufacturing quality, United Airlines reaction, certification of the 737 MAX 7 and 10, and more. Eventually, we get through that and talk about what's happening with the proposed JetBlue and Spirit Airlines merger, some airline route news, and the demise of the Ingenuity Mars helicopter. Now, we've been receiving lots of feedback lately, including comments on Boeing, but also the B-21 Raider flight testing and more favorite aviation movies. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 785 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first our main man, Micah. Hey, everybody. Great to be here. Also joining us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. I have to admit I'm a bit sad this week. I know why. We're going to talk about it, aren't we? We're going to talk about my favorite helicopter, and I miss her already. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, we are going to talk about that. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He's been an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. And I'm still looking for a job because <laughs> I just haven't found myself yet. Hey, good evening to everybody. That's kind of characteristic of uh, journalists, though, isn't it, Rob? Yeah. Yeah, well, journalists, pilots, we're always between positions. All right. Also joining us a little bit late, we think, is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. Of course, he's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. He's out giving a flight lesson uh, this afternoon. Is that right, Rob? He's out. No, he's he's receiving a flight lesson. Oh, oh, oh! He's taking his last helicopter uh, instructional flight uh, before his uh, check ride. That's right. And the check ride is tomorrow. It's tomorrow for his uh, helicopter instrument rating. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, he let us know that he was going to be a little bit late, and uh, like I said. Presumably, he'll be joining us in progress. Our guest this episode, well, we don't have a guest this episode. We were going to have a guest this episode, (laughs) but, um, well, some things transpired, and uh, now we don't. So we've got a lot of topics to talk about, many of them related to Boeing, as you'll find out soon enough. So why don't we jump right into the week's aviation news? Are you guys ready? Yeah. Mainly ready. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, oh, there's Mr. Trescott. Just in time. Now, he's just getting uh, dialed in. I'm not sure if he's got uh, his mic and his headphones set up. I hope so. All right. Well, we just did the introductions. You just, uh, you made it, uh, well, almost on time. Happy to be here. And you were out getting a a lesson we were talking about a little bit. Yeah, helicopter instrument les- lesson. So uh, it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I keep going from safer and safer things to more and more sketchy things. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, that keeps life interesting, doesn't it? It does. It does. It does. 
All right. Well, we're on to the aviation news from the past week. Uh, first one comes from the Seattle Times. A Boeing, not Spirit, misinstalled piece that blew off Alaska Max 9 jet, an industry source says. As we know, Boeing is the airplane manufacturer, but Wichita-based Spirit Aerosystems is an aerostructures supplier that, among other things, builds the 737 fuselage. Uh, and we also should probably add has no relation to the airline. That's right. Yes. No relation to Spirit Airlines. Because being the dork that I am, I didn't realize that and I looked it up. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> now you know. Yeah, that's that's a good point, David. Thanks for thanks for jumping in with that. Well, so here we see in the Seattle Times, uh, Dominic Gates reports that a person familiar with the situation says the door plug was removed and repaired by Boeing, then reinstalled on the 737. Uh, so there's been a lot of reporting about this, Micah, but uh, th- this is something that we were wondering about a week ago, uh, which is, you know, did, did Spirit Aerosystems install the door? Was there any other, um, you know, activity with the door after that? You know, were the bolts in place? Were they not? Uh, and so now we see a little bit more information. Yeah, and uh, Dominic Gates, who's a, a great aerospace reporter and writes with the Seattle Times, uh, had an, an unnamed source that he, he couldn't talk about that came to him and explained that this ended up happening in Boeing and uh, for, or through Boeing. And it seems that uh, there was not some controls in place in terms of quality control that probably should have been. And a lot of times when you hear a uh, you know an unnamed source you you don't know what to believe there are a lot of unnamed sources but when it comes from a a well-known writer that's known to be a good reporter overall oftentimes you can find that there's some merit to it i think rob can probably talk about that a little bit as a journalist i think it's it's important that uh, what you just said is is so true trust is is the key word i think we're hedging on there and when you trust a journalist, uh, which a lot of people say, well, I don't trust journalists at all. Uh, well, okay, that's one way to look at life. But but we do have to learn something about what's going on in the world uh, because of a journalist. Thank goodness. And uh, again, Dominic has a, a really solid reputation, and uh, as, uh, as did uh, John Ostrauer when he was uh, in that area of the world reporting on the airline world, which actually I think he still is, isn't he? He does. And, of course, uh, John is the man behind the air current, uh, which is a subscription-based service, which I subscribe to. You know, it's not inexpensive, uh, but the the reporting is, is fantastic. The analysis is fantastic. And he has a piece out. It's titled uh, 127 Days, The Anatomy of a Boeing Quality Failure. And what he does in this piece is uh, basically uh, reconstructs the timeline, uh, the journey of this particular fuselage from Spirit Aerosystems to Boeing and through the uh, assembly line process. Uh, It's fuselage 8789. And I think John has uh, has relied on information from a number of different sources, and you almost kind of want to say not all of it is a hundred percent verified, but I think um, a great deal of it is. And if it uh, is uh, sufficiently verified to John's satisfaction, then I'm good with that. 
But this particular fuselage underwent you know, a series of kind of remarkable things, at least remarkable from, from the outside. According to the timeline, in part, this fuselage, this specific fuselage arrived at Boeing. Because he's got the dates of all of these, two. The, the four-door plug bolts were, were installed. But Boeing found loose fasteners on the right side door plug, not the one that came loose, and corrected that. And then at final assembly, the door plug on the left side uh, was opened because Boeing discovered a problem with some of the fuselage rivets. And so I guess this door plug needed to be, well, either removed or at least loosened so, they, uh, so that those rivets could be addressed, the problem could be addressed. Spirit has staff at Boeing, and they were deemed to be responsible for the uh, repair of the rivets that had been improperly installed. And you know, it kind of goes on from there. So uh, th- there's this whole timeline showing you know, all this activity around these around these doors, showing quality problems, showing different people touching, putting hands on uh, this equipment to make repairs or to make them uh, other repairs accessible. And there's already a, a kind of known issue between Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems over quality issues. So I don't know. You can just kind of envision this back and forth, and who's responsible, and you know, somewhere along the line, something doesn't get repaired or replaced the way it should have been. It's kind of an amazing story. And one of the things to point out is that Spirit Aerosystems, the manufacturers of the fuselage, used to be Boeing, but Boeing spun it off to its own separate entity as a cost savings factor. Uh, so it's not like it's just some company that came out of the blue. They have been manufacturing fuselages as Boeing for many, many years. As a cost saving measure, uh, I wonder how much Boeing has spent in, uh, in repairs and reputational repairs, not to mention the, uh, uh, the uh, actual physical ones, but I wonder if they've actually saved any money over the years with this whole idea. It's a good question. I mean, often all kinds of mergers, acquisitions, spinoffs just never uh, become as good as they were thought to be, you know, up front. So, yeah, this this may turn out to be one of those things that uh, didn't actually save money. But I, I want to read a portion of the Dominic Gates article that I think is kind of important. And this is quoting from the Uh, anonymous whistleblower, the anonymous source. He says, the reason the door blew off is stated in black and white in Boeing's own records. It's also very, very stupid and speaks volumes about the quality culture at certain portions of the business. And then Dominic Gates goes on to write, the self-described Boeing insider said company records show four bolts that prevent the door plug from sliding up off the door frame pads that take pressurization loads in flight. Quoting from the whistleblower again, were not installed when Boeing delivered the airplane. Our own records reflect this. And that that one actually knocked me on my butt because think about that. You have paperwork that says the bolts are not installed, and yet that didn't trip any, any bells or whistles or anything, and the aircraft was still delivered with that record of Boeing's not, in, or I'm sorry, bolts are not installed. That that's just beyond me. 
it is amazing because usually anytime you've got paperwork, you, there's going to be a review process. So somebody fills it out. Somebody else has to review it and sign it off. Sounds like that uh, secondary process just didn't happen correctly. I think, in, you know, in the end, it's going to be the NTSB investigation that, uh, you know, really lays out all these issues in, uh, in the, you know, the causes, the root causes, the contributing factors and so forth. And, of course, we know that that takes a long, a long time. Um, but and there are so many parties involved here, right? There's uh, even including the FAA and, you know, oversight questions, Boeing, Spirit, it just it goes on and on. It's a complex collection of uh, parties involved in this. But assuming this is correct, that the Boeing paperwork shows that this one fuselage had this problem, think of all the money that Boeing cost the airlines for grounding all the MAX 9s and the um, 900 ERs and all the cost all from faulty paperwork on one fuselage. Well, it wasn't just one because uh, United said they found loose bolts uh, in some of their airplanes. So this this is not just a one-off issue. This is a systemic issue that occurred for some period of time over some number of fuselages, at least according to what we're hearing. Now, there's other fallout from all this, uh, specifically the 737 MAX 7 and the MAX 10. There's another article in the Seattle Times, uh, actually. I, I assume, I don't have it here. I assume Dominic wrote this too, probably. But in, in any event, it's in the Seattle Times. And a, as we know, Boeing is trying to certify the MAX 7 and the MAX 10 and is running into some issues. They need an exemption in order to certify uh, those two aircraft. Uh, it has to do with the engine's anti-ice system. And that um, uh, in December, Boeing asked the FAA to exempt the MAX 7's engine anti-ice system from certain safety standards it fails to meet. Well, so here you have the FAA contemplating this Boeing request. And at the same time, you have this, you know, this new issue uh, with the 737 MAX. And so, the you know, the issue is, well, uh, you know, how likely is is the FAA going to uh, grant an exemption when all the rest of this is going on? I mean, I, I think anybody, any organization, any person would be inclined to kind of go slowly on a matter like this at, at a time like this. <laughs> slowly? <laughs> How about not at all? I think Boeing is going to be getting a lot of help in the form of uh, oversight from the FAA, much more so than they've had in the past. If you think about it, this is two major you know, incidences with uh, the MAX, and the current FAA administrator was the deputy at the time. So I, I think you know, he, he's saying that the agency has been bitten twice now. So I would imagine they're going to be looking very, very carefully at many aspects of Boeing's operation. And, you know, they told us a number of years ago, after the two accidents in Ethiopia and Indonesia, that, okay, the FAA got it this time. We've been way too lax. We're going to step up our oversight of uh, what is going on at Boeing, and uh, this kind of thing isn't going to happen again. And here we are, five years later, saying, gee, they slipped another one by us. And uh, and this issue about the anti-ice, um, of course, the issue is that if the anti-ice is operated in uh, uh, dry air for too long, 
it can uh, cause an overheat in the engine nacelle, and they say possibly causing pieces of the nacelle to uh, to break up and perhaps uh, uh, you know cause another issue like. Uh, uh, remember when that uh, Southwest Airlines airplane uh, had a catastrophic engine failure? And, of course, that understandably destroyed most of that nacelle, but a chunk of it went flying through a window, and, and it, it killed a passenger that was sitting in that seat. And now Boeing is saying, yeah, okay, well, we don't have the answer to this problem yet, but we want to certify the airplane, and, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can with once we've engineered the the fix and uh, i i think th- this faa administrator is saying huh, over my dead body which i think he should well any of us in the same position would be exactly the same way i mean think about it the southwest was kind of a random thing on one engine here you're talking about an issue that could be going on with all engines simultaneously so as as one of them starts overheating guess what the other one may be doing essentially the same thing so that's a much worse situation than, than what we had with southwest a couple of Point, questions and, and points of clarification is that what we're talking about with the anti-ice is on the uh, the CFM uh, Leap 1B engine, uh, which as far as what I'm reading in one of the Dominic Gates articles is the same engine that's used on the current Maxes and is all the current Maxes all have this same problem. So Boeing's argument to allow for the flying of the Max 7 and the Max 10 and having them certified is it's already happening. The pilots are handling it. They just have to remember to turn off the anti-ice, which is not something that can always be remembered when you have a busy cockpit. And that's the argument that, that Boeing is giving, uh, saying that this is why we should be certified. You've mistakenly certified the other two uh, models that's that are currently point. flying. Yeah. That's a, the point I wanted to make. But the question becomes... And, and, and Max, Max Flight, you should, hopefully you might have the answer to this, but anybody might is, is this a Boeing issue or is this a CFM leap engine issue? Yeah, good question. And I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think anybody said. Yeah. And I don't know who, uh, produces, who provides the anti icing system for the, for the CFM 56, the leap one, the, the leap engine. Um, maybe we'll try to find out. That's a good, that's a really good question. That'd be worth digging into. Uh, you know, another thing, um, and I think we mentioned this last, last week concerning the, uh, departure of the uh, door plug on the, uh, Alaska Airlines jet. I mean, we, we, we had some thoughts about lap babies and, uh, uh Rob, you found a, a piece that, uh, discusses that. Well, People that put their infants on their laps uh, has been a bone of contention with me forever. And uh, even when we were, I was flying, uh, uh, you know, 19-seat turboprops for commuter airlines, we, we would allow it. And I always, I'd walk down the aisle and I'd see that and I'd, I would just cringe because I knew all we had to do was hit a few bumps. And if that parent didn't happen to have Really, a really good grip on that baby. Uh, that baby was going to hit the uh, the overhead panel or go flying through the uh, 
through the cabin. But now many years forward, uh, we've had decades and decades and decades of people that say, yeah, but you know what? I cannot afford to uh, to buy the, the baby a seat. It's just we wouldn't be able to go at all uh, if we had to, to pay for that. And uh, what I think the NTSB is saying, as well as FAA is, Guys, then maybe you should think about that because if something ever happened, what is the what what's the uh, the value of your child to your trip uh, to your life if something happens to them? Uh, and and again, in this particular instance where the the plug blew out, if that airplane had been ten thousand feet higher, uh, the the pressure differential would have been much much worse. Uh, or, or much higher, I should say, and uh, anything tied down would have gone flying. And if that had been a baby, a purse, uh, a uh, a baggage—I'm sorry—a uh, a beverage cart, uh, who knows? It would have gone right out that hole, and uh, and the parents would have absolutely no way to to stop it once the baby was out of their hands. Yeah, yeah. What I don't like about that argument about we can't afford to pay for my one-year-old is that suddenly, magically, when that kid turns two, we're able to afford to pay for it. Yeah, so that that argument, I I, I think, is specious. Well, and the thing is that um, the child, a lap baby, one or two things can happen in a crash. Hopefully, it never does. But if there's a real accident, yeah, if if the door blew off, the lap baby could be get sucked out that door. In a crash, you're holding the baby on your lap, and if you're drawn forward, you could be killing that child yourself. And how are you going to feel about that in a crash going down and crushing the baby between you and the seat in front of you? Or that child could become a projectile coming out of your arms, killing it or hurting it and hurting someone else that it lands on. Um, so there's all sorts of terrible dangers from that, and uh, it's really very frightening. I think... Years ago, we had Aunt Penae on, and she talked about this, too, and how whenever she flew with her child, the Princess of Plains, she always brought a, uh, a special harness for her. And I think, Rob, you did the same thing with, uh, when, when your kid was a baby. Absolutely. I think the airlines are probably going to respond to this uh, Boeing problem by simply one simple solution, which is now the cost of, wi- of aisle seats is going to be about 3x, and they're going to have to discount the window seat. Oh, my and I don't think the airlines are in favor of this in general either because it probably would mean they're afraid it would be less passengers because those people who would not fly if they had to pay for a seat for their six-month-old or one-year-old uh, would mean they wouldn't fly at all. And, uh, and But I, I think your point, Max, is, is, is very true, that if you can pay for them at two, you can pay for them at six months or 18 months or one. Well, I've got a slogan for them as well. Uh, <laughs> I can just wait to see this airline slogan. It'll be, uh, what, exit row seats fly free. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. All right. Well, you know, last time we talked about lap babies, uh, I don't know if you uh, if you recall, we, got a, we received a lot of mail, some of it approaching hate mail, um, which is fine. You know, that's that's okay. People can have different uh, different opinions. And so a lot of people did raise this issue of, look, if, you know, I can't afford it and it's either don't, you know, don't visit grandma and grandpa or keep the child on the on the lap and so on and so forth, all the different arguments. So so for, for those of you listening, we don't need to, you know, relitigate, uh, the, you know, that conversation. So uh, you can hold your emails to us uh, 
unless you just feel gigantically compelled because we've we've kind of been through this once before. Yeah, but I don't mind I don't mind answering it again. In which case you can write to Brian at I am really offended at Yahoo. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But don't send an email, send a postcard. Okay. Back to the uh the Max seven and the Max ten, the aircraft that Boeing is trying to get certified. Uh, well, uh, some people, some airlines have a lot of these on order and have been, you know, making their plans based on adding those aircraft to their fleet. And United Airlines is uh, is, is one of them. But, Rob, it sounds like it sounds like United has gotten to the point now where they're starting to question whether or not they need to go off and look at something else. Well, Scott Kirby uh, just said in a news conference that the issue with the uh, the Max Nine had he called it the straw that broke the camel's back, and uh, of course they are looking at uh, uh, expansion, uh, huge expansion plans. But of course they need airplanes to do that, and United had planned on the Max Ten. I forgot how many they said they had on order, but it's quite a few. And uh, Kirby is now saying, you know what, we're just going to, we're going to think about that. Uh, we're taking the MAX uh, 10 out of our, uh, our growth plans for now. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to cancel the order uh, because they are Boeing's largest customer. But it means uh, that they're re- reevaluating things. And I think for their largest customer to say that it's the nicest way that any customer can say, Boeing, what in the hell are you guys doing? Uh, Let's face it, this has been going on since 2018 when that first uh, crash occurred in Indonesia. And people are just getting fed up with, oh, I'm sorry, it's a manufacturing quality issue. Or, you know what, we need an exemption for this because we haven't quite engineered the whole thing, but but we're almost. The, I, I don't think people are going to be giving them the benefit of the doubt anymore. Yeah, and there was two hundred and seventy-seven of them, Rob. I looked it up in the article. Thank you. That's a lot of airplanes for Boeing to lose. Do you remember last week I uh, talked about this concept of cost of poor quality? Well, this is how you jack up the cost of poor quality very, very significantly. Now, of course, Congress, they want answers too, or I was going to be uncharitable, I guess. Um, They want to give the appearance of uh, helping keep flying safe. But in any event, um, Dave Calhoun, Boeing's CEO, um, has uh, uh, been looking forward to, or maybe not, some appearances before uh, our elected officials. And I I guess he's met with some, some U.S. senators, and I think there's maybe some more meetings scheduled. I'm not sure, but uh, as an example, after uh, one meeting with Calhoun, one U.S. Senator, Tammy Duckworth, said that Calhoun offered, quote, no assurance that Boeing would withdraw its exemption request for the 737 MAX 7 jet. So uh, I imagine that these are not uh, pleasant conversations to have with, with Congress, um, and uh, I think everybody's going to be watching how Dave Calhoun responds to the, the questions from our elected officials. I think Dave Calhoun and most of the uh, Boeing board should be thinking about how they're going to word their resignation. 
people were calling for the uh, for the board to, uh, to to be changed up after the 2018-2019 accidents. But to my knowledge, uh, the people on the uh, board then are still on the board now, and people are starting to become really irritated at the fact that the people that got them there in 2018 and 2019 have led Boeing to this place. And, uh, gee, what does it take for someone to say, guys, you got to go? You really do. And uh, we'll, we'll see. You know what's interesting about this is we're recording this on the 29th of January. And on the 29th of January, 2016 was the first flight of the Boeing 737 MAX. <laughs> mm. And what was really interesting about it was I got a Facebook post reminder today of something I posted that day. If I was in a snarky mood, and I am, I would ask what the big deal for, of the 737 MAX is. We've all seen a 737 fly. Just another tube in the sky. Today I added, if I only knew then what we know now, Max <laughs> problems. Oh, David. So, yeah, we'll come back to, uh, uh, to more of this. Uh, it's probably, probably enough uh, Boeing uh, thoughts right now. Welcome to Tanker Hell. <laughs> yeah, there's a- or, or would we call this Boeing Boinking? Uh, yeah. No, we should never do that again. <laughs> no, no Boeing bonking. Okay. So we have some. Uh, we got some listener mail um, on on this topic uh, with some some great points, and uh, we'll we'll kind of take a break from uh, from this topic for well just a little bit and uh, talk about a couple other things that are in the news. We've uh, of course been wondering where the uh, JetBlue Spirit Airlines merger might go. Uh, after the judge ruled against it. And, um, uh, Micah, we had an interesting development in the last few days, I think. Yeah, um, I don't know what happened today, but as of, I think it was Saturday, JetBlue said, well, maybe we don't want to merge with Spirit, uh, being that the courts uh, uh, denied it and denied the merger, and uh, and Spirit said, no, we're going to pursue it. JetBlue is sort of saying, well, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, there were supposed to be some more decisions today. I haven't seen the news today, but uh, I'd be curious to see where it goes. Typically in these merger agreements, there is actually an agreement. So the the parties have gotten together and put pen to paper and described how the merger would take place, the cost, the prices, how much stock, how much cash, all of those issues. But typically you write this, and it's almost like a contract, but it's it's just you know it's an agreement, but typically you write these uh, enumerating what the assumptions are that go into the business case that's uh, being made for the merger, and I think what's happening here perhaps is that JetBlue is you know is looking at the numbers and Spirit's financial condition, let's say, and especially its stock price uh, have changed significantly from. When that when that agreement was put together, in fact, I, I looked at it. Uh, I think this morning, and in the last month, which I guess means the last four weeks, Spirit's stock price is down about sixty two percent in the last month. So the, the numbers have changed a lot. Now, um, 
JetBlue is not saying the deal's off, um, but they are, as Micah uh, described, starting to um, suggest that maybe the, the, the agreement needs to be terminated. Uh, Spirit is saying that, well, there's no basis for terminating the merger agreement. And of course, we don't know. We don't know what the agreement is. But there is a, a deadline coming up. January 28th is the deadline to close the deal under the merger agreement. Uh, however, there is a, an automatic extension to July 24th if regulatory approval was not given, which at this point, you know, it has not been given. And uh, that date is passed. So we can assume that it's been extended to this July 24th date. Uh, but what happens next? I don't know. JetBlue might want to restructure the deal. They might want to say that, well, the terms of the agreement have, you know, have been violated or the assumptions have changed. And so, you know, we have the right under the agreement to, uh, to terminate. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It sounds like JetBlue is in a stronger negotiating position, however, um, than they were because uh, Spirit's condition, as I described, is much worse than it had been in the past. The article says that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote from the article, Spirit has said it is assessing options to refinance its 2025 debt maturities and is not pursuing or involved in a statutory restructuring, meaning we're not trying to go Chapter 11 just yet, but we're going to try to refinance. Now, refinancing at this point, rates are up. They're going to be paying a whole heck of a lot more for the money they would have gotten just a few years ago. And if they're in this kind of trouble, that may not just work at all. I also think the drop in stock price may be telling us that the market is starting to doubt whether this merger is actually going to happen. Uh, and certainly, as uh, you know, things progress, I'm sure JetBlue has found out a lot more about uh, the situation at Spirit than they knew before. And they may be slightly less inclined to complete the deal at the price that they originally agreed to. So, yeah, this this may be some good bargaining posture to try and uh, beat the price down. Or it may be, you know, an opportunity for them to start setting the tone for, hey, we're going to walk away. You know, when we first started talking about this merger, none of us thought it made any sense. Uh, clearly, there was something that uh, JetBlue saw that, you know, we didn't see. That, uh, that made sense. But I just kind of wonder if, uh, as time has passed, if they've come more and more to uh, close to our point of view. <laughs> well, and the other thing the article says, um, not in so many words, but that uh, Spirit is looking to become liquid again by uh, taking money away from uh, Max Flight's pension. Because, uh, they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, a lot of the problems they've been having is because they had to ground a number of aircraft that were flying the, uh, a geared turbofan. And they think that Pratt and Whitney will be a, quote, significant source of liquidity over the next couple of years. Yeah, we shall see. Yeah, yeah. All right. Airline route news. Uh, we have a couple of uh, items pertaining to United Airlines and also Breeze Airways. So uh, we see United is um, launching some uh, some routes from Washington, D.C. to Alaska. Daily service from Dulles to Anchorage they begin May 23rd, 2024, run through September 2nd. And that would be using 737 MAX 8 jets. Add some capacity. It's 18 flights and uh, adds just under 3,000 seats in May. 
Uh, also, United plans to uh, relaunch service from Denver to Fairbanks. So uh, I guess a lot of people are heading up to Alaska. To, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, get away from the heat or or maybe the smoke from the fires. I'm not sure what's uh, causing that. They're following John Wayne in the movie North to Alaska. Great song. And then also, uh, Micah, Breeze Airways is uh, adding adding airports and routes as well. You know, I love Breeze Airways, and there's no doubt about it, but they're, 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 I think they're just great. But, yeah, starting uh, in May, they're going to open up uh, seasonal, seasonal service between uh, Denver and Providence. And uh, then uh, there's going to be uh, another, uh, some other new routes from Mobile, Alabama uh, to uh, to Orlando. It's mobile. Mobile. It's mobile. I don't know. Who said when I'm going to go and when I'm going to go, it's going mobile? That's another <laughs> story. So, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Denver's going to be a, uh, a new base for them as part of 11 new routes. And I'm looking for the other ones and can't quite find them. Oh, there they are. Um, two times a week seasonal between Hartford and Myrtle Beach, Max. So mm-hmm. uh, you can head down to Myrtle Beach and, uh, and also uh, Tampa to Orange County, California. So maybe Brian can experience Breeze when he goes to visit his mom. You know, I'd really like to fly on the uh, Airbus, the A220 that Breeze operates. Because I'd never flown on, a, on an A220, formerly the C-Series, which was the the first plane to utilize the geared turbofan engine. So uh, there's uh, sort of a, a historical connection with me, so uh, I'd love to fly that. It's a great airplane, really comfortable, really quiet, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, other places are going. I just found it. They're going L.A. to Madison, Wisconsin, and L.A. to Akron, Ohio. Great. So they're expanding. They're doing doing well, I think. David, you look uh, like you want to say something. No, I was just thinking you don't fly anymore. Well, I haven't in a couple of years. Uh, well, the, uh, pre-pandemic was the last time I, I flew. I think, you know, I think my next flight may be just to experience a certain aircraft, like the A220. And I've never flown on a 787. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do that. So, uh, I don't know. Next air trip may be just sort of specifically uh, built around flying on a particular airplane. Well, watch for sales from Breeze, Max, and I'll tell our, our listeners this, too, because just a few weeks ago, uh, they were offering a 35% discount off base fares out of Portland. It was just Portland, and it was any flight, as long as you made the reservation. I think it was January by 20, January 22nd. It was good for flights through May. And 35% off the base fare, that's a lot of savings. Yeah. But why would you want to give up the opportunity, the luxury of a four-wheel drive Jeep towing a trailer at 60 miles an hour and it and it only takes six weeks to get from <laughs> the northeast to florida if you're so inclined i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't pass up that that kind of fun mike i mean do you realize what what that would be asking max to do yeah and it's only 17 gallons per mile and i didn't make a mistake when i said that. <laughs> you, you know I, i'm uh, I, i've bought a bigger truck I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get a bigger camper. What What are you getting? Um, I got a uh, a big Ford pickup truck. Wow, which model? Uh, an F three fifty. Holy wow! <laughs> that'd, that'd be a big truck, baby. It is a big truck. 
Is that gas or diesel? Uh, gas. Wow. I think once you get up to that size, you're required to get a CB. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you might as well drive the thing because I'm sure the gas mileage is the same whether you're driving it or whether you leave it parked oh, in the garage. Practically. <laughs> yeah, practically. Yes. So, uh, so next time at Oshkosh or uh, or Sun and Fun or uh, some some event like that or a fly-in in, in the Carolinas, perhaps, uh, may show up with some a, a different rig than. Now wait a minute! You're getting a new trailer too. We got to know about that as well. Yeah, well, uh, we'll 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 talk about that later. I think that you and Captain Jeff, because he's getting his big camper, you know, yep. the, the mobile home. You guys ought to you be able to travel together. In fact, he and I have already been communicating <laughs> over email uh, about that. So, all right. Well, one uh, one last news story, and um, this is kind of interesting, David. We've talked about the Mars or the Ingenuity Mars helicopter. I think it was April nineteenth, twenty twenty one. David became the first craft to achieve powered controlled flight on another planet. And uh, there's some news about the little Ingenuity helicopter. Yeah, some news. Ginny is no longer going to fly. Oh, I'm kind of fond of Ginny because she was the aircraft of the year from the helicopter museum. But more to the point, it was an amazing piece of technology that was at best only going to fly five times. The fact that it flew once, it was, it was a lovely experience getting up to watch the results, even though you didn't actually see it fly because of the delay, you know, it flew within waiting for all the technology but unfortunately, on its 72nd flight, it sustained damage to one of the rotor blades. And they, interesting enough, how they told, figured that out was they saw the shadow of the lower blade on the ground, and it is torn up on the tip. So probably the most successful helicopter on Mars. Okay, well, the only successful <laughs> helicopter on Mars. Um it is amazing that we control an aircraft, and this is an aircraft. It's it can only fly in atmosphere from one planet to another. I mean, it it was a huge technological advance. She's not very big. She's not very heavy, but she pulled her weight and punched way above her weight. Um, you know, perseverance, or as everybody calls her, Percy. It's still going to go on for years, but every time NASA puts down a craft, and they always seem to exceed expectations. And this week, we were reminded that space is hard. JAXA, the Japan program, launched a vehicle to the moon, you know, and we were doing that. And unfortunately, it impacted on its top instead of its bottom. Um, and basically they land, they six, they were the fifth country in the world to land on the moon, but it was not necessarily a successful landing. I know the Smithsonian is currently planning a mission to Mars to recover Jenny, to bring her back home. Really? <laughs> I'm joking folks. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there were quite a few memes last week. One of them was, um, a, 
a picture of the Apollo 13 mission. And, you know, at this point, this has become a rescue mission, you know, or, or the other, the other very fun one was the new mission to recover Ginny is called Vengeance to take out the raw little rock that took out its rotor blade. Wait, wait, let's not speculate. Let's wait till the NTSB report is yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, yeah, that's my line. So it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's something that uh, it was a technology demonstration. Uh, you said five flights, right? Up to five flights is what they, they thought basically if it, if it flew five times, it was going to be, that was be it. They were hoping it flew once. If it flew five times, it exceeded expectations. Um, I don't think anybody would think years in 72 flights. At various heights and moving, and and each one was more an endeavor than the first, you know. And this is a solar powered vehicle, you know. It, that's the other thing you got to remember. And it, the blades of the speeds are so much faster in Martian atmosphere because it has less atmosphere, right? You don't have the pressures to force on the uh, wings to so they can provide lift so the design of this little helicopter and, and it is a helicopter a coaxial helicopter if you think about it it had to be deployed from the bottom of perseverance perseverance had to move away from it it then had to be taught where it was and how to fly um and and then Remember, there's a time lag between controlling the vehicle and the vehicle actually doing it and, and the time it comes back, the signal comes back. So when Persever- when Ginny first flew that day, um, they sent the signals and then they had to wait to find out if it actually happened. And I, I remember being up at that early morning dawn to watch those controllers and when it flew, you know, it was awesome. So we have now flown, you know, in 1903 and then a little over a hundred years later, we flew onto another planet and that's just, you can't be an av geek and not, and, and everybody who's an av geek likes spacecraft too, but this is an air, this is an aviation moment more than it is even a space moment. Hey, let me follow up on what you mentioned about the uh, the pressure on Mars because this really surprised me. The atmospheric pressure is about one percent of what it is here on Earth, which the equivalent would be flying a helicopter at between eighty and ninety thousand feet. And I assure you, very few helicopters here uh, in uh, on Earth uh, get up to twenty five thousand feet. They're a lot of trouble when they go try and rescue people on. Uh, Mount Everest. Uh, but the way they compensated for it is, as you mentioned, increase in RPM. So lift is proportional to uh, air density. Uh, so it was 100 times less dense. Uh, so now we've got basically 1% of the lift. But uh, fortunately, uh, lift is proportional to the square of the velocity. So by spinning the rotors about 10 times faster, you get the offset of that you know, loss of uh, you know factor of 100 with the air density. But then they also have some dampening issues because 
it's a little bit less, um, more subject to vibration because the thick air helps kind of dampen vibrations and things like that. So yes, all kinds of challenges. It's really, you know, fantastic what they were able to achieve. It, it seems like there were a couple of things that happened here, right? There was kind of first and foremost uh, that we could design an aircraft and deliver it to Mars and that it would fly. Uh, but another thing that seems to be a kind of a major accomplishment here is how a helicopter, how an aircraft can work in conjunction with a rover, with, you know, some other device, you know, symbiotically, in fact, to really enhance the, you know, the capability of, you know, of the rover in what, in what it does. I mean, I think that we're just sort of touching the you know, scratching the surface of you know, how the helicopter could assist a rover. Uh, but we proved that it could be done, which is a significant thing in and of itself. And David talked about the time delay. And I think that's important to understand what that means. We're talking about you send a signal to Mars, depending on where Mars is in orbit from the planet Earth, yes. it takes between five and 20 minutes for the signal to get there. That means that in order to know that something has occurred, it takes between 10 and 40 minutes mm. for the person on Earth who is controlling it to know whether something has taken place. Now, can you understand what it might be like? I mean, think about it if you're flying as a pilot to putting in a signal control to the aircraft and not having it take effect for 5 to 20 minutes from the time you gave it the control method and moved the stick. Phenomenal. And of course, it wasn't just those issues that was also the the uh, atmospheric uh, problems around Mars. I mean, the uh, they, they mentioned the computers uh, booting down at the end of the day because uh, the system could not keep up with the amount of heat that the batteries needed to remain online. And I, I looked it up and I said, well, okay, I don't know, how, how cold does it get? And it, they, they said it, it was getting down to 112 below zero Fahrenheit, mm. uh, and the poor little system couldn't keep up. Oh, really? Oh, it couldn't <laughs> cope with 112 below? Uh, my God, I can't believe it lasted as long as it did. And one last thing. If you want to watch a dramatization, but seems to be reasonably accurate, of what life on Mars might be, the Apple TV Plus show for all mankind has been just fabulous. Have any of you guys seen it? No, no, I've not. Highly recommended. It. It's in its third or fourth season, uh, and uh, all the seasons were great. The the premise is, in fact, it was a launchpad that told me about it before I had Apple TV. The premise is that the uh, the Russians beat us to the moon, <laughs> and and what happens after that? And uh, but it, it's a fabulous what if science fiction kind of future history uh, series that that I, I highly recommend. And if you want to uh, learn more about ingenuity, there's a there's a great uh, website that NASA has. We'll, we'll have this link in the show notes, but it's pretty easy. It's mars.nasa.gov slash technology slash helicopter. Uh, great uh, resource jumping. Hey, out. and David, you said they called they called it Jenny? Jenny. Jenny. G-I-N-N. Short for ingenuity. That's cool. I think that's really cool. Hey, what's up with the geeks? Uh, let's see. Uh, Max Trescott, have some news for us? 
Well, let's see. Um, I, the first thing I mentioned, of course, was that uh, I've been working on my instrument rating for helicopter. And so I uh, had another lesson this afternoon. And uh, what can I say? It's uh, it's a challenge. You take something that's hard and then you just kind of layer on something else, which is <laughs> even more difficult. So that's been fun. But I want to mention that uh, this week coming up in uh, episode 313 of Aviation News Talk, I've got uh, – DPE Seth Lake, who is going to be on the show talking about multi-engine training safety. And specifically, we're talking about the VMC demonstration, which seems to lead to a couple of uh, aircraft accidents and uh, fatal accidents uh, every year. Uh, this particular uh, demonstration is required as part of uh, the training and the, and the check ride for, for multi-engine. Uh, and yet it's um, probably the thing that puts both instructors and students at most risk uh, when they are training in uh, multi-engine aircraft. So Seth has some ideas on how he can uh, get the FAA potentially to change exactly how that demonstration must be performed to uh, to enhance safety. So it should be a good show. Um, but what's DPE? Sure. That would be a designated pilot examiner. So that's the person who gives uh, check rides. And VMC? VMC. Uh, so V speeds, uh, we have many, many, many V speeds, V, VY, best rate of climb, VR for rotation speed and so on. Uh, the MC is minimal controllable uh, airspeed. And specifically, it's going to be with uh, a single engine operating on a multi-engine aircraft where the uh, critical engine is uh, at zero power and the other engine is at uh, full power. So you've got pretty much the worst case condition. And the issue is that as you're doing this demonstration, you can end up in a spin. And many twins are, uh, in fact, most twins uh, have no spin testing done on them. So you become a test pilot. And that's not the way to figure out if uh, that airplane is going to be able to recover from a spin or not. And Max, I got to ask you a question. I, when you were first starting in a helicopter, I had asked you what it was like being a fixed wing pilot. And did that help or hinder you in terms of learning to fly a helicopter? And well, now you're doing instrument rating training. Does your instrument background as a fixed wing pilot, did that help or hinder you in terms of your work flying a helicopter? Oh, yeah. No, it helped tremendously uh, because uh, so much is the same uh, when you're doing that. Uh, so, in, in fact, they let you uh, take the check ride with just 15 hours of instrument time in the helicopter versus the 40 that would be required if you were to start your instrument training for, from scratch in a helicopter or, or an airplane. So, yeah, it's much, much, much easier. And I would say that uh, if I were to compare going from fixed wing to helicopter and going from instrument to instrument, the instrument to instrument is a lot easier. That's great. Thanks. How many approaches do you have to shoot for the, for the check ride? Well, so it's the same as for any instrument check ride. So typically it's going to be three. So there's a, a required precision approach, which usually is an ILS. But the FAA sometime in the last couple of years has said that you can now substitute an RNAV GPS approach that has LPV minimums, provided those minimums uh, take you down within 300 feet AGL. And if they do, then you could use that RNAV approach to substitute for the ILS. And then you've got to do two non-precision approaches one has to be partial panel. 
Uh, the interesting thing is, this was kind of new to me. Uh, if you do a, a check ride for instruments in an airplane, you have to do a circle to land where, for example, you might be landing on runway uh, 36. And then as you get close to, I'm sorry, flying an approach to runway 36. And then as you get close to the airport, you essentially join a traffic pattern and then land in the opposite direction, which would be 1-8. For helicopters, there's no such requirement, probably because when you get to the airport, it's pretty easy just to you know come to a stop and do whatever you want to do. So no, uh, no requirement for circle to land on a helicopter check ride. All right, Rob Mark, anything interesting going on with you? Well, speaking as we were earlier of batteries, uh, uh, over at JetWine.com, Scott made a, uh, a very interesting argument about uh, batteries and what happens to them when they get cold. Uh, because, of course, here in the Midwest, we saw a, uh, I don't know if you guys on the East Coast got that blast of really frigid air a couple of weeks ago where we had yeah. 20 and 30 below wind chills. And uh, uh, a lot of cars that were electric uh, had a few issues with them, and he uh, took it upon himself to do a little digging and think about what would happen with uh, electric aircraft when they're up high and the temperature is uh, is uh, cold. Uh, and so I'd invite everybody to go over and take a look at it, and uh, I'm not going to tell you how the story ends. But it's an interesting story, and you know, when I read it, I it's like, wow, why didn't I... Why didn't I think of this before? It's funny. I, I, I said the same thing. I called him after I read it. and I went, I didn't know that. In fact, it never even occurred to me to think about that. I don't know why, but it just it just didn't. So Yeah. We were talking about campers and RVs before, a little off topic. But, um, you know, we make heavy use of uh, lithium batteries, 12-volt batteries, to power the electrical systems for for those kind of RVs, typically uh, recharged with uh, solar panels, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. But the lithium batteries are an issue in in cold weather. And so if you are camping in cold weather, well, you can either find an alternate energy source or there are lithium batteries that are self self-heating. They actually use some of their own stored electricity to keep themselves warm uh, so that they can operate, and especially so they can be charged at the, at the lower temperatures. So, uh, yeah, when you start to think about these, these questions with, with airplanes uh, that maybe uh, would be flying at altitudes where the air temperature is pretty cold, you, got, you sort of got to think about that. So I'm sure, you know, there, there are a number of electric airplanes out there now, or several anyway. And so it'd be interesting to hear from, uh, you know, from some of those manufacturers as to how much uh, of an issue this is and uh, what they're doing or plan to do or have done to, to you know, to mitigate that, that issue of having cold temperatures and lithium batteries. I think we should ask Elon and, and have him tell us about that. I'll call him up right after this. Okay. All right, let's do some listener mail um, as we uh, kind of continue to uh, to go through this. Um, uh, we heard from Frank. Frank Frank did some serious fact checking, I guess, on on some of the things we said last um, last episode. Now, uh oh, we we don't encourage that. I know, but it, 
this this is this is great stuff. Now he, he does say I really enjoy your program, so um, so that's good. We don't hate we don't hate you, Frank, because you enjoy the program. Um, but he said we made a number of mistakes. And now this one I don't remember. He said there's no such thing as a Max Nine ER, although that would be a sweet concept. He said I don't remember anybody saying Max Nine ER. I might have said instead of the 900 ER, there might have been one time when I might have said Max 9 ER. When I read that, I said, well, maybe I did that because I was going back and forth on it quite a bit. And I'm known to make such mistakes. Yeah, that, that's easy to do. And uh, yeah, so yeah, there is no na- Max. And I, and, I, and I just said Max 900 ER. And there's no there's no Max 900 ER. It's a 900 ER. So you see, I just did it again. Also, um he said, Frank said that the uh, the Lion Air and Ethiopian crashes uh, were the Max Eight, not the Max Seven. Of course, couldn't be the Max Seven because that's not certified yet. And then also, and, and I think I did this, although I'm not sure. And he said it's it's Max then the number, not the number then Max. So it's a seven. It's not a seven three seven eight Max. It's a 737 Max 8. And I might have flipped those in my... Uh... I'm sorry, 8 what? 8 what? <laughs> yeah. You know, you guys, I think I'm just getting maxed out. Yeah, it's exactly. too much. It's too much. I know, because, you know, when I was writing the... And I, I, I wrote back to Frank, and I, I told him this. But when I was writing the show notes, I think I, I wrote 9 Max in the show notes. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, is that right? And then I said, no, that's not right. And I flipped it. And then I couldn't decide whether I knew what I was talking about or not, or misremembering. So I had to actually look it up to make sure I got it right. So I don't know, I guess, you know, maybe the, maybe the root cause here is uh, all of us. uh, What is it that we are? Mostly retired uh, aviation (laughs) podcasters having senior. Did you say retired or retarded? Mostly (laughs) retired. Although. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So uh, thanks, Frank, for, for doing that. Apologize for, for not getting everything right. But, you know, seriously, though, we're not perfect. And we encourage if you uh, hear us well, say you something. speak for yourself. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right, yes. Uh, so Andy wrote in, um, and he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of questions uh, about the Alaska Airlines 737 topic from episode 783. And... He said, uh, are you guys refusing to fly on Boeing products these days? And I'm not. I mean, I'll ask what you guys think. But, uh, you know, I have no problem on on flying on a Boeing aircraft. I have no problem flying a 737 MAX of any sort. Because, um, you know, while we have talked about some, you know, maybe some quality issues that are concerning I would not refuse to get on the plane. I know. I think there are some of the general public that might, but I don't know any of you guys uh, would would avoid flying on Boeing products these days. I can tell you that where possible, I I try and fly on a Cirrus product rather than. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see that. I'll take a B fifty two any day. Wow. The only thing I can say for sure is that uh, on an Airbus, uh, the seats are usually about an inch wider when you look at Seat Guru. And I like that, but I would never refuse to fly on a Boeing. Yeah, yeah. Although I prefer a B-17. Yeah, the B-52, at least if you lose an engine, you have that dreaded seven-engine approach that you have to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, on the cockpit door, on the cockpit door, um, he writes, if, if the breach is in the cockpit instead of the cabin, does the door go forward? I don't think so. I think it 
No, no. The hinges the hinges wouldn't allow it to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, no, and the door jam is set for it to clo- open right. out, not in. And so I don't know if we've had these cockpit doors, you know, experience this before. You know, in other cases, but because um, he asks us uh, if there are you know any other documented cases of, of the door opening in a decompression event, and uh, you know, I that I don't know. I'm I'm really not sure. Well, during all this controversy, I believe someone asked uh, someone that was knowledgeable uh, about this, and and they said most pilots didn't even know that that was that that could happen. Uh, it was as much a surprise to them that the door would do that as, as it was to anybody else. Yeah, and on that, uh, Andy asked, uh, how did the Alaska crew, not knowing the door would open, affect the safe recovery of the aircraft and, and passengers? No, I, I don't think it had anything to do with it. It was just generally a surprise. Yeah, I think it was just kind of an interesting artifact, but had little to do with uh, you know recovering the aircraft safely. Now, I don't know what the, you know, the force, it sounds like a lot. If somebody had been standing there and the door smacked them, is it swung? I mean, I don't know if there's a danger, you know, there. That could hurt. Yeah, that could hurt. (laughs) Well, it did open pretty forcefully. I, I had heard that it opened so forcefully in such a slam that the door latch between the cockpit door and the lav door, the actual handles jammed together. And they needed two flight attendants to actually pull it apart so they could close the door again. So that's a pretty quick slam. Pretty powerful. Now, Andy, uh, on the topic of the doors, Andy asked, uh, what are the relative odds of getting hit by an opening cockpit door compared to lightning? And I sort of tongue-in-cheek said, probably less than the odds of getting hit by an opening cockpit door and getting hit by lightning. (laughs) Well, and I guess the question is, is he talking about getting hit by lightning in the airplane or on the ground? Because certainly many people die every year being hit by lightning on the ground. And many aircraft get struck by lightning, but I can't remember anybody dying in an aircraft that got struck by lightning. But I'm I'm sure there are some cases of that. But if you do get hit by lightning and struck by a cockpit door at the same time, then make sure to buy a Powerball ticket that exactly. day. That's right. That's right. And but as you said, Rob, I think the, the you know the big issue with this is that you know another uh, another aircraft system or or something relating to the operation of the aircraft that it turns out the pilots are unaware of, and you, yeah. you, you know you you you'd really like the pilots would really like to know. I would assume as much as possible about how the airplane operates. Well, sure. And this goes back to the uh, original issues that popped up when the uh, Indonesian aircraft and the uh, uh, the Ethiopian 73 went in, that the MCAS system that uh, you know pushed the nose over on those airplanes was completely unknown. Yeah. To the pilots, not just the Ethiopian and the Indonesian pilots, but but everybody that flew the airplane, uh, not, nobody had any idea because Boeing didn't tell anybody about it because they thought the chances of them needing to know that information was so slim. In fact, I heard that in one of the comments on in, in some of this this week's stories that uh, you know, I think it was on the uh, overheating of the. Uh, the nacelles. Oh, it's highly improbable. Yeah. Okay. We've been down that road, and again, I don't think people are buying that 
Hey, speaking of highly improbable, I went and looked up uh, airplane crashes from lightning strikes. So the last commercial airliner to crash from a lightning strike was in 1963. It was Pan Am Flight 214. Oddly, it crashed at a place that I've been, which is Elkton, Maryland, which is very close to the uh, Delaware border. I've flown out of the Elkton, uh, Maryland airport before. Uh, and apparently the uh, aircraft was struck by lightning and they concluded that it ignited fuel vapors in one of the aircraft's fuel tanks, causing an explosion that destroyed one of the wings. So this was a Boeing 707. Don't know what's been changed in the design to prevent that from occurring again, but I bet there have been some changes. I've been in, in an airplane that was struck by lightning, but we were on the ground. Hmm. And the only thing that happened is oh, all the hairs stood on end on my on my body, stood on end. It was really it was kind of cool. I guess it was like a big giant Van de Graaff generator sort of an experience. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to get comments about what is that. But basically an airplane's a Faraday cage anyway. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So unless the airplane crashes, you're going to be safe. Much like you're going to be safe inside your car if an electric wire has fallen on it. Don't get out of the car. Yeah, you don't want to touch ground. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So, so on this issue of... And I thought this was kind of interesting of, you know, what are the odds of, you know, an opening cockpit door hitting someone? He asks, um, is every extremely improbable event covered in training and documentation? And, and if, you know, how would a crew member remember all of them? And that got me thinking. I don't know when pilots are trained or at least commercial pilots, I don't know what logic is used to determine which events get trained for or simulated and which don't. You know, I can imagine that the most likely events, you know, you would be trained for those, the things that sure. could happen most likely. What about all the rest of them? You know, is is there training or No, you you couldn't possibly you couldn't possibly train somebody for every possible uh, emergency they need to cope with, but what would you do to is you, you train people to to cope with, as you said, the most likely events, and then there are going to be those events that were considered improbable, and you hope that the crew is smart enough to perhaps take a piece of something they learned about engine failures and put it together with something that relates to uh, perhaps a fuel issue and, and a failure of some electrical system or something like that, and you know, synthesize an answer. I mean, that's all you can do because you're, uh, uh, he's right. You couldn't possibly remember all the stuff, even if it's in a checklist. I just, well, I was not on the show here last week because I was in Knoxville doing my annual recurrent training in the Cirrus Vision Jet. And we do lots of training both initially and annually uh, on emergencies. And what pilots are taught is if something comes up, go to the checklist. And so you have checklists for dozens and dozens and dozens of both abnormal events as well as for emergencies. And you couldn't possibly remember all the things that are in those checklists. So pilots are trained to go to the checklist. Now, in terms of actual events that we simulate in the simulator, I had a total of four flights this uh, last weekend. And yeah, there might have been four 
four or five different kinds of emergencies and some of them multiple times. So I know I had at least two engine fires on, you know, different simulator rides, uh, but total probably no more than four or five different types of emergencies. And yet there are dozens and dozens and dozens of emergencies. And what they really do is beat it in your head. Checklist, checklist, checklist. Checklists cover the kinds of events that have extremely low probability. I mean, are the checklists, are there more checklists than you, know, you can possibly imagine? So they cover all of these situations? It's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are things that, uh, you know, are not covered by checklists. I mean, the most famous one that comes to mind is the uh, United crash at Sioux City, uh, Iowa, many, many years ago, where, you know, the, the DC-10 had the triple hydraulic failure. So, yeah, there's always, I think, going to be something that's not in the checklist. Uh, but they, they certainly go pretty deep. I, I've had a hard time. Yeah, as for example, I've encountered a number of things over the years in, in the vision jet. Every one of those things I've encountered is in the checklist. But Max T, I think you could answer this probably better than anyone as an engineer and a pilot, that I think flying skills, you learn them like you learn your engineering skills, and then you take them and you come into a new problem or a new situation, and you use them to the skills that you have to solve that new equation, just like you use the flying skills that you learn to solve something that's thrown at you that you may not have ever seen before. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with systems knowledge. And so you know, people do a, a get a lot of training on all the different systems and how they interact. And I would say that that's the area where I'm always learning something new when I'm in the simulator when they say, hey, you know, if you have this kind of thing happen, then that's probably going to lead to this other kind of, you know, thing. So, yeah, that, that kind of interaction is important to understand. And that, that's the area where it gets complex. Mm-hmm. Andy asked another interesting question, was, uh, which was, how do Boeing and Airbus and other manufacturers, for that matter, uh, how do their safety rates and accident patterns compare? Airbus rec- record is not pristine, um, but uh, whatever differences there are between them absolutely pale in comparison to other transportation modes. So uh, with respect to Airbus versus Boeing and the safety, I don't know what the metric is, you know. Um, it's got to be more than just number of incidents. You know, you don't want to uh, – about fatalities or – I mean, I don't know what the metric is, but uh, whatever it is, I don't know how Boeing and Airbus compare. Probably something like accidents per million miles flown or something like something that. Something like that. Or, or Yeah, or because Boeing's hours. have been flying for a much longer than, than Airbus have. So you can't just mix, you know, apples and apples. I was going to say, you know, Airbus has had control issues as well, and uh, they, they've been resolved. And, um, you know, the first a, one of the first A320s that come off the line crashed during a test flight at an air show because of uh, some control issues. They were resolved. Uh, Rob, you, I don't know, Air France 447 may or may not could be – have been considered a partial control issue based on the way that it was responded. And they did some updates to the, to the control system based on that. And then the big Air Force, uh, the Airbus A400M Atlas, uh, had some major control issues that brought it down in, in Spain. Um, so I mean, there, there have been those same things because of computer generated control issues that may not have been, the company may not have been aware of as they were designing them. And Boeing's had those issues too. 
Here's something that just came up really quickly when I did a Google. It said that uh, Airbus says their Generation 4 aircraft have a fatal accident rate of 0.05 accidents per million flight cycles uh, in 2022. So I guess that's the, you know, they're not using hours or miles. They're using flight cycles. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, Andy, thanks for all the questions. Uh, you know, really thought-provoking, and uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, and we'll put your letters right at the top of the list next time, Andy. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Oh, I'm sorry. Did that go out? I, I, no, I'm <laughs> kidding, Andy. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then uh, another item uh, from Tom. This is an article in The Drive. B-21 Raider flight testing now underway. So this, is, of course, is the Air Force's uh, B-21 Raider stealth bomber, and it, it's now conducting test flights. David, I guess these are from Edwards Air Force Base in California. The first flight actually was a delivery flight to Edwards. So it, its first flight was from Palmdale, which is the um, Area 42 site that usually develops these products. And then it was flown to Edwards and has become, has cycled a couple of times now in, been flying. So the other part of that story was that um, the Air Force has already bought a batch of production aircraft. Um, production or pre-production? Pre-production aircraft, yeah, okay. sorry. On basically sight unseen. So, I mean, it's clearly um, that program is moving much more rapid than the original B-2 program. And you know, the Air Force is definitely trying to improve its prototyping ability. Can I ask a dumb question as a as a not not as a military pilot guy but so tell me David what was the big hang up why did the B2 just never seem to get the respect it apparently wanted uh, over the years and and now they're building a uh, I think the B21's a smaller aircraft is it not the B-21 is smaller. Um, it, it's definitely more technologically advanced. I'm not sure why you're saying that the B-2 would never got any respect. Um, we only produced so many of them because the production line got canceled by Congress and their price went astronomical. So they were becoming billion-dollar bombers. That's why we only had so many of them. And that was a... Um, but... The B two B two is, I mean, I mean, it is the it is the state of the art bomber in the world. Um, the B twenty one is ironically designed to replace the B two and the B one of our bomber triad. Note, I have left out an aircraft. <laughs> um, so. The the running joke when the B two came around was that the B two would be retired to the boneyard and the crew would be picked up by a B fifty two. Well, I have a feeling that the B twenty one, the B twenty one will will also be retired to the boneyard and picked up by the crew of the B fifty two. The B ones are definitely they have reached their limit, and stealth is is. This is this is probably a fifth generation bomber. And one of the technological advances is it's going to be networked into F22s, F35s where the B2 doesn't have that ability the the electronics that make make its 
but the B2 is highly successful. We've only ever lost one as far as an accident mishap goes, and that was um, in the Pacific. But the problem was we didn't get a lot of them because budget cuts and Congress thought it was too expensive, you know, and they never figured out that if you buy more of them, they get cheaper. So, so the 21s are going to be cheaper relatively? The 21s are, are, much, are much more um, economical, and the Air Force has learned its lesson and is going to purchase enough that they will have a reasonable price. And I'm sure Northrop Grumman is working with them too. I mean, the other part of that is there may be a potential – of other nations acquiring the B-21, which was never going to happen with the B-2. Economical unless Congress does it again, which they certainly could. I mean, certainly the B-2 was supposed to be produced in larger numbers. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's possible we'll be looking at the same, same a similar situation again. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's it's hard, you know, building a new technology like everything else. You're trying to build something that, that'll fight a war 25 years from now, you know, I I mean, it's, and the, the thing about the B-21 is its networking ability will have it in a way that it's designed that it will be able to be upgraded in the electronic space um, with more wet, right. Then the B-21 didn't remember that the B-2, excuse me, the B-20, B-2, Remember, the B-2 was designed in the 70s. First flew in the 90s, but it was originally a program that came out of the 70s. So it's a 50-year-old aircraft for all intents and purposes. I wonder what they thought the life of the B-52 was going to be originally when they when they designed that. Uh five to ten years wow i mean but we also produced how many b-52s i i don't know a couple hundred the b-50 okay the b-52 was started to be designed at the immediately after world war ii in fact you can trace its lineage to world war ii and we were going through aircraft changes pretty dramatically remember that in the space of only a couple of years, we went from B-29s to B-50s to B-47s as a jet aircraft, which brought about the KC-135 and the 707, and then B-52s, you know. And the Russians weren't much different. They're still flying Tu-95 Bears long after they flew their more technologically advanced bombers. Hmm. It's there was a sweet spot there, and the B the B fifty two that people's great grandfathers flew is not the same aircraft that are the current generation of pilots are flying. So, David, this um, this B twenty one, it's called the Cerberus. Cerberus was the name of that prototype. Yeah, of that the aircraft's prototype. the official aircraft's name given to it by the Air Force, it is the Raider. That's what I thought, yeah. yeah. Which is in honor of the um, Doolittle Raiders, 
as well as its kind of aggressive nature. So that's where the Raider came from. But the um, Cerebus was the name of that actual airframe. Um, you know, we name aircraft all the time. So Yeah, I was wondering you know, where that – because that's the three-headed dog – that guards Hades. Okay. That's yes, that's Cerebus, yes. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And I believe the second and third prototypes have names similar From mythology. to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Can't wait to see what those are. All right, one one last email that we received. This one from Ed. We got some more favorite airplane movies, and he offered several to uh, to add to our, our list. Uh, the, the Battle of Britain... The Hindenburg, The Bombardment. I don't know that one. Uh, that's a, he says, a Netflix World War II movie with mosquitoes. Uh, there's uh, Catch Me If You Can. That's with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, a bunch of others. Um, so uh, those, are, those are Ed's favorites. Well, I wanted to say that uh, I thought about The Hindenburg, but it's a speculative fiction kind of story with George C. Scott and Anne Bancroft and Charles Durning. And the concept is a thriller that somebody planted a bomb on the Hindenburg and that's why it exploded. So, yeah, but some of these others are also, you know, speculative or fiction. And and, and catch me if you can is a story, a true story about a guy that wasn't even a pilot, right? About check kiting. And he happened to be able to pose as a Pan Am pilot, I think when he was 16 or 17 years old, to be able to get around and get away from the FBI. Uh, so there were a couple of, you know, scenes in there, but, uh, and, and, and it's a great, I really enjoy the film. But it's fun. <laughs> but oh, it's, it's a fun, fun film. Don't get totally. me wrong. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We're going to wrap this episode up. Uh, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. A direct link to the show notes for this episode, of course, is airplanegeeks.com slash 875. And as always, you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. Uh, let's see. Micah, where can folks find you? Well, you can always find me with Pasadena Brian Coleman on the Journey is Reward podcast. We just released a new episode today as we're recording it, and it's with my Kreplock brother and the Journey's Reward map maker, Eric Ryback. Cool. And David Vanderhoof, where do we find you? Asleep when we talk about the 737 map. <laughs> well, you woke up for the uh, B-21, huh? Well, yeah. Well, of course. I, I, but anyway. We've done how many of these episodes these people don't know where how to get a hold of us? Yeah, this is your opportunity to plug the museum. I better do that because my boss will get upset. Very good. What I recommend is if you're in the southeast Pennsylvania area, come visit the American Helicopter Museum. I'll be happy to give you a little tour around. And I always love our listeners showing up. Terrific. And Rob Mark, where do we find you? Uh, Places that have jetwine.com in the name, uh, amongst other places. Uh, In fact, I was talking to one of our old buddies, uh, Steve Vischer, this weekend. And uh, he asked me how things were, were coming along at Camp Jetwine because uh, he, he mentioned to me that it was 2010, I think, when we all met in Oshkosh, either 2010 or 2011, and uh, a bunch of the guys stayed here at Camp Jetwine. And D- David, I think you did too, didn't you? Yep. I was, I was part of that entourage. 
and uh, and our dog uh, at the time Simba was here, and he of course didn't want to come in the house. He wanted to stay up here with these guys, and we could <laughs> not get him back in the house. Really, I don't know yeah. what they were doing. I mean, maybe they were feeding him treats uh, regularly, it was, it but was nobody but Vischer. Are was... you talking about Steve or the dog? I'm, I'm getting confused now. <laughs> uh, yes, I am actually. Um, uh, Steve. Uh, you know, it, uh, he, he has lots of uh, No, lots we of couldn't treats. get Grant out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they're probably feeding him, uh, feeding the dog. What's that, a Vegemite? Or what's that stuff they have down there? Yeah. Oh, God, we talked about that, actually. Something about a Vegemite. What was that song, remember? Uh, Man Down Under. Australian treat. Men Without Hats. Uh, oh, God, just the... Th- of course, they eat kangaroos, too, and I think they're <laughs> no, very they don't. cute. They, don't. they do. Uh, sure. Do, do they? Did you ever hear Steve tell stories about putting a, 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 a roux on, on the Barbie? Uh, <laughs> what does it oh, taste like, yeah. chicken? No, men at work did uh, the land down from the land down under, and uh, Vegemite tastes like something a dog might really like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, Max Flight, you can uh, find out How where about I... Trescott? What? Oh, God. I thought we did Trescott. Max no. Trescott, how about you? Where do we find you? Oh, I think you mean the late Max Trescott, right? Because I'm late coming to, late coming yeah, to the show late here today. tonight. Yeah, check me out at the usual spots, uh, the Aviation News Talk podcast. If you want to send me an email, just go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. And I'll try and be on time next week. Good, good. Didn't I forget you last time, too? I wasn't here last time. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why I forgot you. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. See you real soon. Thanks for listening. 